Welcome to the American Academy of Dermatology's Dialogues in Dermatology podcast series. This podcast is certified for CME credit. For credit information, visit Dialogues in Dermatology at aad.org slash OLC. The information in this CME activity is for continuing education purposes only. It is not intended to establish a standard of care and is not meant to substitute for independent medical judgment of a health provider relative to the diagnostic, management, and treatment options of a specific patient's medical condition. At the conclusion of this learning activity, listeners should be able to recognize appropriate use of topical and oral JAK inhibitors. Hello. And welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Janus kinase, or JAK inhibitors, were first introduced as therapeutics for myelofibrosis and rheumatoid arthritis. More recently, this class of medications has been studied for the treatment of a wide range of dermatologic conditions. The Janus kinase signal transducer and activator of transcription, or JAK-STAT pathway of intracellular signaling mediates several immune-mediated inflammatory dermatoses. The scope of this pathway is constantly evolving. Understanding the complexities of this therapeutic class is essential for practical disease management. In this episode of Dialogue in Dermatology, Drs. Peter Leo and Jacqueline Dizal discussed the newly approved JAK inhibitors and their use in dermatology. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Dr. Jackie Dosal, and I'm a practicing dermatologist from Skin Associates of South Florida and Coral Gables. Today's topic will be all about JAK inhibitors with the esteemed Dr. Peter Leo. Welcome, Dr. Leo. Thank you so much for having me. So Peter is a clinical assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Northwestern University. He received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School and his dermatology training at Harvard. And while at Harvard, he received formal training in acupuncture. Dr. Leo is the founding director of the Chicago Integrative Eczema Center and a founding faculty member for the Integrative Dermatology Certificate Program. He's a board member of the National Eczema Association and has written over 200 publications and three textbooks. So we're so happy to have you here. Thank you again. And this is a great topic. I was laughing to myself thinking this is going to be Jack inhibitors for dummies because I feel like we're going to review it all and try to get up to speed because so much has changed and advanced within the last few years. And I know that we haven't had the in-person meetings and many of us feel behind the curve with these new therapeutics. So let's start with the basics. What is a JAK inhibitor? And can you sort of describe how it works and why we should know about it? Absolutely. So first of all, I think in a way we're all kind of at that first stage of learning because it really is a very big change for us. This is a totally new class of medications in dermatology. Of course, we've had these in other areas of medicine in the past, but this is a big deal. So I think it's, it's worth spending a moment in understanding them. The JAK inhibitor class has been around for quite some time in other uses, and it really is a targeted immunosuppressant slash anti-inflammatory class. It's a very small molecule. So it's actually able to penetrate through the skin very well and actually into the cell. So it actually goes through the cell membrane, unlike other larger drugs, in particular biologic agents, which can't penetrate into a cell and therefore actually work on either the cytokines themselves or the receptor. And without a diagram, it's a little tricky, but I still like to go through the cascade of thinking about how we have messages sent through our body from cell to cell, right? So one cell releases a cytokine. These are soluble factors that go through 
and they go up to another cell, they bind then to a specific cytokine receptor. So for example, let's say we're talking about IL-13, that IL-13 cytokine binds to a cell receptor on the surface of the cell. When it binds, the proteins in that receptor actually undergo conformational change and quote unquote, transmit that message through the cell membrane inside the cell. When that happens, the jack enzymes are sitting down there nearby the base of that, they actually dimerize and they can activate stat. Stat actually then goes into the nucleus and alters transcription. So that's kind of the whole relay race or cascade that goes through. And we know that of course there are ways to block cytokines with some of our biologics, block the receptors, some of the biologics. And then if we go into the cell, we can actually affect Jack directly. And that's what these Jack inhibitors do. It turns out you can even interact with stat. There are other drugs that can do that, but this is at that point of the pathway. Excellent. Okay. And so what I'm gathering is that the JAK-STAT pathway is involved in a lot when it comes to dermatology, more than we even knew. Yes, it is really, really broadly important in biology and lots of different cytokines use this pathway. There are four members of the JAK-STAT pathway of the JAK pathway, JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, and then one called TIC2 for tyrosine kinase 2. And there are different combinations. We said they dimerize, you know, they could, they pair up, but depending on what the cytokine is and the receptor setup is, it may be JAK1 and JAK3 or JAK1 and JAK2. It turns out that for allergy and allergic and atopic diseases, like in particular atopic dermatitis, where we have our approvals so far, JAK1 seems to be the commonality. That's the common thread. So you'll hear different JAK inhibitors talk about either being a pan JAK inhibitor, they kind of block them all or interfere with them all, or they're selective. And in particular, you hear about this JAK1 selectivity. JAK1 seems to be a little bit more appropriate and concentrated in the area of these allergy things. If you go to other members of the Jack family, you have a higher risk or a higher chance of interfering with different processes that maybe for certain disease states you'd want to deal with, but in others you might not want to, because we know this affects, for example, granulocyte monocyte factors, and it can also affect platelet growth and all sorts of hematologic indices. So we have a number of different aspects that can be altered. And we ideally would not want to mess with those for atopic dermatitis. We'd want to focus more on our Jack one system if we can, or minimizing that. Great. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I think getting down to the nitty gritty of each of these will be important as we start to refine our knowledge, because this is something that's important as we understand the side effects, as which I think you were alluding to before. Do you mind taking a step back and just sort of talking about what's happened in the last few years? You know, I remember hearing about tofacitinib for rheumatoid arthritis a few years ago and sort of, you know, almost, I don't know if it was serendipitously, but hearing Brett King talking about some of the off-label uses that we were finding in things like vitiligo or alopecia areata. Do you have any comments on that, on how things have sort of evolved or how they came to be? Yes. I mean, the history is so fascinating to see how everything has played out. You know, I've been focused on atopic dermatitis for more than a decade, and I really have to thank Dr. Amy Peller, who was my mentor. And she's the one who sort of said, this is what you should focus on. And it was really, she's a genius in many ways, but this was another one of her moments because I think she saw that we were on the cusp of something big with really seeing far in the future, because it took a number of years before anything happened. When I first got interested, we had almost nothing focused on atopic dermatitis. And it was really difficult. We were using everything off-label. Meanwhile, we're watching psoriasis get all of these new and exciting treatments, more and more targeted, better before. And it's been fascinating. Well, you're right. Dr. Brett King at Yale has done some incredible work looking at some of the JAK inhibitors in particular, one of the oldest ones, tofacitinib, which has been approved for rheumatoid arthritis for a number of years. And 
early on, he thought, boy, this makes sense. This pathway is not so specific to rheumatoid arthritis. It could potentially help with other inflammatory conditions, especially ones for which we have unmet needs. And in particular, I think he's looked at atopic dermatitis and alopecia areata. Those are kind of the two major areas, although that's certainly not the end of where this might be able to help. And he's looked at it both in terms of oral preparations. That's actually the approved way that it's on the market, not for atopic dermatitis or these other indications, of course, but also people have compounded it. There have been other folks compounding it topically in using other agents like topical ruxolitinib. Now we actually have that as an FDA approved preparation, but there were reports in the literature years ago, of people just having it compounded because you could get that again as a pill form or a powdered form and a specialized pharmacy could make that for you. So we've known for a number of years that these pathways are integral to a number of inflammatory problems that we deal with. And this is my opinion firmly right now, but I think that they are more targeted and in general have a better balance of risk and you know efficacy than corticosteroids. So at some point you could start to say, well, gosh, these sound a lot like corticosteroids, right? We've been using these since the 1950s, since the advent of compound F and all of these things. Absolutely. And they are comparable in some ways. They kind of have a broad anti-inflammatory effect, anti-itch effect. They work in a number of different conditions, but I do think they are slightly more targeted is, is a helpful way to think about it. And although we don't really have direct comparative data, I think we can infer from, and I'm working on a paper right now, trying to be a little bit more rigorous than just general inference and getting a gestalt, but I think we're going to be able to say, okay, look, yes, these are some serious risks that are associated with the Jack inhibitor class. But if we look at some of the things we've used much more nonchalantly, you know, prednisolone for kids all the time, if they have an asthma flare or a bad or to carry a case. And of course, for atopic dermatitis, arguably somewhat inappropriately using it there, I think we'll see that these are actually a better bang for your buck, so to speak. So we've watched these get refined and refined. And then there was this long teasing period where they were submitted a number of companies you know, three to be exact had submitted oral Jack inhibitors to the FDA for atopic dermatitis. And then we expected them kind of in the summertime and nothing came. And finally it didn't happen until really the beginning of this year, January, that we had two of the three approved. And the third one, baricitinib remains approved only for rheumatoid arthritis and not for atopic dermatitis in the United States. Now in other countries across the world, it does have an atopic derm indication, making everything even more complex. So we do have a lot to learn. I don't know the status of that beyond the fact that it's not available yet. And it does make it a little bit trickier though, even to have two agents right now, which one should I pick? Who's the appropriate patient for this? When should we use them as opposed to the biologics or opposed to the conventional immunosuppressants? And of course, even the labeling of the JAK inhibitors in the United States, including our topical ruxolitinib, which was approved at the end of September last year, they are pretty scary. They all have black box warnings that list everything quite boldly, you know, all these concerning things, malignancy and major adverse cardiovascular events and so on. So I think there's a lot of patient handholding and shared decision-making that we have to make and really good patient selection, right? I never want to push this on a patient because the risks are potentially much higher than, for example, a topical agent that we've used in the past. Right. So let's take a step back because if you're new to the Jack inhibitors, you may not even know what's approved yet. So what is so far been FDA approved, let's say for any dermatologic condition? Yeah. So we have three total. So we have our topical ruxolitinib that was approved at the end of September. And that is a topical Jack inhibitor. It's in a kind of a light cream base. It has a number of warnings on there, but pretty exciting because unlike a steroid, not going to thin the skin, not going to have issues around some of the sensitive areas like ocular issues or in the folds. So that's been out for a couple of months. And then in January, we got two of the oral agents, both are dosed at once daily dosing, and they actually both come in a couple different dosage strengths, but that we have abracitinib, 
And that's the one that was by Pfizer. And then we have upadacitinib, and that's the one by AbbVie. By the way, the topical ruxolitinib is from the company called Insight. So these are the three that we have, the two orals and the one topical. And the abracitinib comes in 100 milligram and 200 milligram tablets. And upadacitinib comes in 15 milligram and 30 milligram tablets. But in general, we'd start with that lower dose. And then if a patient weren't doing well on that dose, we could, we have that flexibility to increase, which is also to my knowledge, kind of the first time I've ever seen this in an FDA approved way. I mean, clearly we escalate doses of things all the time in an off-label way, but it's kind of neat. Both of these drugs have on their label. If the patient's not achieving where you want them, you actually can go to that higher dose. And I think it's, it's pretty neat actually. Yeah. So continuing with the topical, it's so nice to have another non-cortisone medication for our patients. And tell me what type of patient you're using this for and how you address what's on their black box warning with your patients. Absolutely. You know, I have a a pretty crazy clinic in that it's very enriched with patients who are struggling. So in a way I feel lucky if you can feel lucky with this. I mean, I feel bad for all these poor patients that are struggling, but I feel lucky because my patients really need new stuff. I'm not really worried about, did they fail this and this? They failed everything. So I can kind of jump into the new treatments. I mean, I literally truly have a waiting list in my office of when new drugs are being developed. I'm saying, okay, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so we're going to put you on this list. This is supposed to come out in February. I'll call you as soon as it's out because that's the level of unmet need. You know, they failed all these things. That being said, So the first people are the people who are really severe and miserable and have failed everything else. But as we learn more about these treatments, I think then they start to find their niche a little bit more. And I think a good example is, is with dupilumab that of course came out originally in March of 2017, initial indication was for adults with atopic dermatitis. Now we've seen it drop to the 12 to 17 year old range and now down to six years of age indication for AD. But also we know that they've submitted the data down to six months. So we may actually see that medication approved from six months and up. And what's neat is when that first came out, I had the same scenario, a bunch of patients who had failed everything we had so far, but now I find that for example, for dupilumab, I don't feel like I have to wait until they failed a number of other things. If they've had trouble with topicals, in some ways it's become my first systemic agent. Although I do, I'm a big fan of phototherapy. So I might mention phototherapy first, but a lot of patients can't, you know, functionally do it. It becomes a little bit of a logistical issue. So that has become one of my top lines. Now with our JAK inhibitors right now, especially talking about our oral ones in particular, I'm kind of reserving them for these end stage cases, but maybe in time we're going to be able to say, golly, you know, if a patient has really bad disease and they're having tons of acute issues, nothing seems to work faster than these oral JAK inhibitors. So that could be a really huge boon. Not only is the depth of their effect, the magnitude of their efficacy, honestly, among the best things we've ever seen atopic dermatitis, but their, their speed, the rapidity is it's staggering. I mean, we're talking some of the studies you, you see in, in the approved decks, you're looking at these, these studies where two days you can actually see measurable, significant change. And that's different, right? Yeah. That's something new for us. That's great. And our patients are going to be thrilled at that too, because there's really nothing that rivals that. One of the hardest parts about these medications though, is that they really do have these very stern warnings that can really, you know, strike fear into the hearts of anybody, even the most desperate patients. So I think a big part of our job is to avoid the 1030 PM phone call. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the past, sometimes even with things like tacrolimus, right? Topical tacrolimus has been out since 2000 and 2001 or so. And I don't often talk about the black box. I'll often say, you know, you may see some warnings. We'll talk about it. I'm so used to it, but occasionally the patient fills the prescription after work 
at the pharmacy, they go home, they're about to put it on their kid or on themselves. And they read the black box and they say, wait a minute. And I get the call. So I feel like in a way that means I failed. And I still am guilty sometimes. I try my hardest not to, but sometimes I forget. It's a busy visit. We're talking about so many things. And I think that can really shake the patient. So for these, I try to be extremely preemptive and proactive. I try to say, okay, listen, these are very powerful medicines. Let's start with our topical ruxolitinib because that one, I think many people are going to be able to use or experiment with and try because it really has a broader indication. And, and overall, I think is less cumbersome to use than the oral medicines. So for that, you'll notice the black box warnings are the same. They really do say essentially the exact same thing. And a lot of that data is based on a very important study, a post-marketing study that was done in rheumatoid arthritis patients using, as we were talking about before, tofacitinib, so a different JAK inhibitor in a group of patients that by definition had to be at least 50 years of age and had to have at least one major cardiovascular risk factor. So this makes it really hard. You know, it's sort of like if you're trying to compare apples to apples and you have a group of patients that has a whole separate disease and using a different drug, it has different risk factors. What can you say to our, you know, a 28 year old guy with atopic dermatitis, who's feeling great, but is miserable except for the skin. I don't know. The, the truth is right. As I think as scientists, we have to say, we don't know. We don't know how to translate this on an individual level. All we can say is that these medicines as a class have some serious side effects. We ought to let you know because we don't want surprises and they're all new enough that we really don't know that, you know, I'd like to think that ours are safer and our population group is safer. And from what we see in the trials, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients, thousands, even we look at the trials for all of these medicines together, that's still not enough. There's still maybe a signal that we can't see. So how do I tell my patients? I say, I'm really trying to make sure we pick the right patient. And, and I always say, we're not rushing into this. You've done your due diligence. You've done your topicals. You've done probably some other systemic agent, or we couldn't do it for one reason or another. And you're suffering you're suffering a lot. So one of the things I love is something called the atopic dermatitis control tool, the ADCT. It's free online. It's non-sponsored. It's fabulous. It's six questions. It takes under one minute. A patient can do it, answer six questions about their disease and they get a number. And that number is pretty powerful because you can track it. It's a validated scale. You can track it. And basically you want them under seven. If they're seven or less, you feel like, all right, you're in pretty good control. But if they're more than that, that means they're probably not well controlled. And I got, I had a patient this morning, it was like 21, I think. And it was very striking because she thought, she said, you know, I think I'm okay. I'm doing all right with what I'm doing. I said, let's do this together. We just did it together live. And she couldn't believe it. And I said, yeah, I mean, you're really not, you know, you're three, four nights a week. You're having trouble with your sleep. This is a huge problem. Like you can't, this is not okay. It's not normal, but people become inured to it over time. So picking the right patient, explaining that this is an extremely powerful class of medications that does have some potential risks. And then for the topical version, I like to say, listen, I think if we're careful with our amount of usage, we're going to be using it to targeted body areas. We're not going to be using it continuously for long periods of time. We're certainly not going to be able to use more than 60 grams a week, which is actually one of the things they put in the label because you can't afford it. Like it's expensive <laughs> and you're generally going to get one a month if you're lucky. So I, I really tell my patients, I don't think these are going to apply to us in the same way, but you should know about the class. Now for the orals, then I say the same thing. I say, this was done in a different population. We think their risks are probably higher than what yours will be. They're not zero, but there's a risk to having eczema that's untreated. There's a risk to driving in to see me this morning, right? Especially in Chicago, you could get in a car accident, you could get carjacked. There's all these things. We deal with risk all the time. So trying to put that in perspective is very difficult, but I think part of it is the strength of that relationship and making it a shared decision. I present these options to the patient and let them in, you know, really sort of tell me when they're ready. And sometimes we end the visit. It can be a long visit. And I say, I don't want you to decide right now. Nope. 
I want you to go home. Think about it. Let's talk tomorrow. Read about it. Talk to your family. You know, make sure you feel comfortable because the one thing I don't want is someone who feels like I pushed it on them and then they have a bad effect and they're saying, oh my gosh, this guy told me to do this. I like it to be more, we're going to come to this together. That's great. That's such great advice. I do just want to be clear though. What actually are the black box warnings on these? Because we talked about it, but we didn't directly say, and are they the same for, I think you did say that they are, but are they the same exact conditions for each of the jack inhibitors, the topical and two orals? They are extremely similar. Yes. You know, the, the actual prescribing information does vary a little bit on each product. And I would encourage everybody to spend a few minutes to look at it because our patients get it in every single package. So, you know, most of them don't read it, but some of them do. So it is good to spend some time, but there are a couple of major things they talk about. They mention, first of all, this major adverse cardiovascular event, and these include things like myocardial infarction and stroke. They talk about clotting. So deep vein thrombosis, arterial thrombosis. They talk about mortality risk. So there really did seem to be a higher risk of mortality, especially in patients who are current smokers or former smokers. They also talk about malignancy. So both skin cancers, that's elevated. And in fact, some of the labels actually say, recommend to your patients skin screening. And that's something we all do, right? We know how to do that better than anybody and sun protection because there's a skin cancer increase, but also non-skin cancer elevation, especially in that rheumatoid arthritis study that was seen. So we have a number of different serious issues. And then we have the lab abnormalities. Now, again, for the topical Ruxolitinib, I don't, they're not indicated necessarily for this, but for the two orals that are approved, they are. And the big issues are there has been cases of hyperlipidemia. There have been cases of thrombocytopenia, anemia, uh, lymphopenia. So you really do have to keep an eye and liver enzyme elevation and CPK elevation. So kind of keeping an eye on these labs. Also, of course, we're going to want to do like we would maybe a psoriasis biologic uh, or any, any immunosuppressive medicine, a TB tested baseline hepatitis panel at baseline. And I'm actually doing a, an HIV test at baseline too, just to be sure. And I'm repeating that level of intensity every year so that I make sure. And then I'm doing labs usually the first month and then the third month and then quarterly if things are looking good, but there's some nuance there and I'm, I'm still trying to find my footing on it as well. Do you check a pregnancy test? So thank you. Yeah. That's an interesting point. These are definitely contraindicated in pregnancy. We really do suspect that they could cause fetal harm, but I haven't, you know, in general, I'm talking to the patients. I explain that to them. I don't think it's a bad idea, but I'm also not prepared to treat it like I would isotretinoin seeing them every month. So, you know, I think just kind of explaining that if, if they found out they were pregnant, then we'd want to stop it immediately and talk about it. There's actually a registry as well, if they were going to stay on it, but in general, I just make it very clear and, and talk to the patients directly. And then what about drug interactions? Do I have to worry about anything when I'm prescribing? You definitely do. And that also makes our life very tricky. And I will be honest with you, a lot of them are kind of tricky. Like there's a whole special section about antithrombotic agents. In the first few months, you're not supposed to be on any antiplatelet agents except for low-dose aspirin. Then in theory, you could go back on it. And there's a whole bunch of things that could potentially interact. So I do recommend reading it. This is a time where I really love my little pocket computer and I could punch it in and say, hmm, but I will tell you already, I've had to talk to several primary care doctors and say, okay, can we hold this one? This is a cardiac medicine. How can we do, because I'm not comfortable messing around with their medicines. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, the indication will say lower the dose or monitor. It's like, I don't know how to do that for their other, you know, for their other medicine. Obviously I can do it with our stuff, but it really does take a team approach. And this is very different than the biologics, which delightfully don't have really any drug-drug interaction. So you can just sort of use it willy-nilly. 
right? The one that I read about was fluconazole and ketoconazole, which would be more in our wheelhouse that we might be uh, concurrently prescribing for some other reason. So that was one, I guess, because of the CYP interactions. So I certainly took note of that. The one other thing that I wanted to ask you about was when I was reading about the topicals, I read that acne could be a potential side effect. Do you have experience with that? Yes. And in fact, in a number of different oral JAK inhibitor trials, acne was one of the more common of the adverse events. In fact, I believe it was even as high as like 15 or 16% in one of the trials of patients. Now, the vast majority of those cases seem to be really mild and usually are able to be treated with conventional acne type approaches, but there are a few patients who dropped out of the trials uh, because of the acne. So I think that is something worth talking about. One of the things that's already come up is if they're using the topical ruxolitinib, the topical jack on their face, would that increase the risk for acne? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know yet. I'm watching carefully. And for these oral agents, I think it is something we're going to see. Weirdly enough, I will say, and I was involved in one of the trials, knock on wood, I have not seen it personally. I've just heard about it. So I I haven't seen it personally, but hopefully I won't have to, but I presume we will. If the numbers really are more than 10%, I think we're all bound to see it eventually. Okay. So let's say you're starting your your atopic dermatitis patient on one of the oral JAK inhibitors. Um, What do you counsel? What can we expect as far as duration of therapy? Is this like a biologic that's sort of indefinite? Do you try to take them off? How do you approach it? And I know that there's FDA labels too. So some of this will be off label, I'm sure. Yes. No. And I love the question because right. That's something that uh, the FDA sort of doesn't really put much about. And the companies don't talk much about how do we get them off? But our patients ask a lot about that. Like the number one thing people ask me is, is this forever? You know? And I think my response generally, again, this is just me. So take this as you will. I'm speaking only for myself, but I often say, no, I don't think anything should be forever. I think we need to get this under control because it's crazy out of control and it's hurting you and hurting your life and damaging your skin further and creating a vicious cycle of disease. So we need to stop it. And I think we need to hold it down for a while. We need to get you from this vicious cycle of flaring to a virtuous cycle of healing. And how long does that take? I usually tell patients in my experience on the order of six months to a year for many patients, but if you're doing great in that time frame and feeling really well, I don't think it's crazy to think we could potentially start weaning or coming off of a medicine. Now, for certain conditions and certain patients, you do that, it comes right back. Fine. I believe that. No, there's, you know, I'm not denying that, but I will tell you, I've written papers about it too. For some patients, when you hold them in this state for a while and you stop, they enter a relative remission. And that to me is powerful. That's deep healing. And I really do think, well, we have some of the data because in some of the trials with these oral jacks, they've randomized people back to placebo at some point. And actually there is a proportion of the patients who actually stay relatively clear. They maintain their clear or almost clear easy 75 status. So there's no doubt that it's a real thing. The question is, can we be clever? Can we predict who is the right patient to do this? And I think part of it, again, it's a give and take. How are you feeling? I have some patients who say, please do not take me off. I love my life now. I am doing everything I wanted to do. I always tell a story. I had a cardiothoracic surgeon several years ago. He was on permanent disability. And I had to write something that I never wrote. I had to try to write a reversal of permanent disability because when he went on, one of the new agents, he could operate again. He could actually do it. So it changed his entire life and he's now operating. It's completely crazy, right? So that that's the kind of thing that we can potentially offer with some of these more powerful treatments, something that truly we didn't have in the past. That's amazing. We are starting to run out of time. We could talk about this forever, but I do just want to mention a couple of the conditions that I've read about 
that were, you know, have been reported as off-label use, which is just, I mean, I love reading this stuff because I think dermatologists are the most creative and smart people, but of course it's been used for uh, off-label. There's reports of alopecia areata, dermatomyositis, granuloma annulare, sarcoidosis, lichen planus, morphia, just overall pruritus, which it sounds like works very well for itching, um, psoriasis, vitiligo, and, and others. I mean, it's really remarkable. So when I hear things like that, I just think we're on the cusp of something really fantastic. And and I, I found myself debating this in my mind as I've been learning about them. Should we be really excited about these? Which it sounds like the answer is yes. Or should we be scared? Well, I think you're right on. And the, probably the wisest answer is a little bit of both, right? We know that with any great technology, it can be helpful and harmful. And the sword always cuts both ways. The sharper the sword, the more dangerous it is. So these are incredibly powerful. And there's no doubt. I always tell my patients too we're not trying to put this in the water. You don't see my face plastered on the side of a bus saying, come over and I'll give you this medicine. No, no, no. You know, you're coming to us because you're suffering, right? That's the only people I really am saying these are for. If you are healthy and do not need these medicines or medicine in general, that's better, right? I don't want people on stuff that they don't need. That's our first to do no harm. That's our major objective and our prime directive, if you will. So before those patients who are really, really suffering, and I've seen suffering to me in my practice, atopic dermatitis is the worst. It causes the most suffering because it's not only the patient, it's the whole family unit. It affects the school and society. And even us, like there are days I come home, I'm depressed. I feel like I have not helped anybody as much as I wish I could. You know, people are sobbing on the phone and it's just terrible. So to have some new powerful things for those patients, I really think that can change the narrative for these people, but it can be scary too. And we're going to cause some harm as we try to help, but that comes with the territory. Right? And that's why we have to have that relationship. They're not a client, they're a patient. And we really have that patient doctor connection because they have to believe that I'm really trying to help. And even if bad things happen, certainly we didn't want that, but we all know if we're going to take those risks, some bad things are going to happen. And for the right patient and the right setup, I think it's worth it. It's worth it to take those risks because we can get an awful lot of people better. I love it. I love it. Such a great message and hope too. So thank you so much. Anything that we missed, anything else you want to leave us with? Gosh, I think that's it. I just hope everybody spends a little time learning about them and is not afraid to use them. I know they're kind of scary. I think my big concern is just that there's so many patients with bad atopic dermatitis who really feel undertreated and feel kind of unsatisfied because they get the same message over and over, you know, here's a one pound jar of steroid, good luck. And I think it would just be so great. Even if you're not comfortable prescribing it, refer to somebody who is, you know, get comfortable or if you have one person in the group or in, in the neighborhood that says, you know what, I'll take care of this. Uh, I just think that's a powerful thing. And I say that, you know, speaking with my national eczema association hat on, I'm a, I'm a board member. So I just hear over and over and over for patients who are feeling unheard and sort of uncared for. And I know we have the power. That's why I love dermatology so much. We have the power to actually help them. And now we have the tools as well as the talent. Love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Leo. Thank you again for having me. This has been great. There are four members of the Jack family, Jack 1, Jack 2, Jack 3, and Tick 2. These cytoplasmic tyrosine kinases are phosphorylated and dimerized in response to specific cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, and growth hormones. These then phosphorylate stat transcription factors, ultimately resulting in gene transcription. JAK inhibitors are small molecule drugs that act as targeted immunosuppressant agents and through inhibition of the JAK-STAT pathway, regulate immune responses and cell growth. For therapeutic effects, these drugs inhibit specific JAK targets. Dr. Leo highlights the role of JAK1 in allergic atopic diseases. 
the United States Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, approved ruxolitinib, a topical JAK inhibitor, for the first in its class for atopic dermatitis in September of 2021. Dermatologists have had tofacitinib available for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis, but earlier this year, two additional oral JAK inhibitors, upadacitinib and abracitinib, were approved for atopic dermatitis. Baricitinib is another that is currently not approved for the treatment of atopic dermatitis in the United States, but it is within other countries. Beyond their FDA approvals, these medications have therapeutic potential in alopecia areata, vitiligo, dermatomyositis, lupus erythematosus, graft-versus-host disease, and psoriasis. In his clinic, Dr. Leo has reserved these medications for his end-stage atopic dermatitis patients and has seen them work with both speed and efficacy. He compares the JAK inhibitors to dupilumab when it was first approved, highlighting that there is often evolution in treatment once new medications find their niche. Dr. Leo stresses the importance of education, shared decision-making, and good patient selection when choosing to prescribe these medications. Black box warnings for the JAK inhibitor class include serious infections, malignancy, major adverse cardiovascular events, and thrombosis. More commonly, increased upper respiratory infections, acne, and lab abnormalities have been seen during therapy. Laboratory monitoring is necessary before starting an oral JAK inhibitor. Dr. Leo emphasizes keeping a close eye out for hyperlipidemia and hematologic abnormalities, as well as liver enzyme and CPK elevation. Thrombocytopenia, anemia, and lymphopenia are seen in a dose-dependent manner, but are reversible after treatment cessation. Dr. Leo repeats these labs at the first month, third month, and then quarterly. Baseline labs are similar to other immunosuppressive medications or biologic therapies and include testing for tuberculosis and hepatitis. Dr. Leo also tests for HIV. These medications should not be used during pregnancy or while breastfeeding. Physicians should be aware of drug-drug interactions. Dr. Dazal and Dr. Leo discuss the importance of recognizing the medications that can interact with oral JAK inhibitors and how to work as an interdisciplinary team when managing these patients. Specifically, Dr. Leo talks about the use of antiplatelet therapy, which except for low-dose aspirin, is contraindicated for the first three months of treatment with abracitinib. When patients ask if they will be on the medication forever, Dr. Leo emphasizes the importance of stopping the vicious cycle of disease and typically tells his patients to expect a treatment course of six months to one year. Dr. Leo encourages listeners to spend the time to become familiar with the prescribing information for each of these novel therapies and to work with patients to make an informed decision. He emphasizes that although the JAK inhibitors come with risks, these risks can be worth it to relieve suffering in our patients. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.